This is the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Today, a very non-mainstream view of the North Korean nuclear crisis, the gut-brain axis, an axis of evil, and from our vaults, a debate that never grows old, the relative merits of U.S. corporate health care versus Canada's public health care system. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. What is nostalgia? It's an emotion common to all human beings, but what is it? What does it feel like? Does it feel good or bad? And is it a healthy, positive thing or something harmful and undesirable? Perhaps the best definition of nostalgia comes from a novel, the title of which, unfortunately, the memory banks have purged. Nostalgia is the bittersweet remembrance of past events that can never return. Sometimes that longing is for a past that never was, or wasn't quite what we remember. We wistfully recall experiences and people we knew as children, but we also yearn for that simpler, happier time. It probably wasn't as simple or happy as it now looks to us so much further up the road. Examples of nostalgia abound in music and literature, from Stevie Wonder's Stay Gold all the way back to Virgil's Aeneid and Homer's Odyssey. Believe it or not, nostalgia was once thought to be a mental disorder, but in the last couple of decades, scientific studies and research have shown that daydreaming about the days it used to be, can ease loneliness and social isolation by giving people a coherent narrative of their past. But in the last couple of decades, scientific studies and research have shown that daydreaming about the days it used to be can ease loneliness and social isolation by giving people a coherent narrative of their past that makes their lives feel more meaningful. So, what is nostalgia? It's the memory of an irretrievable past suffused with emotion. There is sadness mixed with the sweetness, yet nostalgia is not sorrow or regret. Is it good for us? Is it healthy? Some say so. It can strengthen our relationships with others and help us see value and purpose in our daily lives. But you know what they say, everything in moderation Steal away into that way back when, but don't forget to return to the here and now. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg.
Tippy Tina, Roy Bird, a.k.a. Professor Longhair. A bunch of the world's most powerful and influential nations just held a meeting in Vancouver, Canada, about what to do about North Korea, invariably referred to in the media as an unpredictable rogue state led by a crazy leader and a mortal threat to the free world. Everyone was at the Vancouver gathering, everyone except those who seem to best understand North Korea and have a plan to work things out, Russia and China. Michael Chosodovsky is a Canadian political scientist of the Maverick variety. Here's Chosodovsky sharing his thoughts with an audience at the University of Winnipeg this past week. I think that the history of war crimes extensive war crimes without precedent in world history is the starting point of debate on North Korea and the dangers of nuclear war. According to official figures of allied forces, including statements of General Curtis LeMay, North Korea lost up to 30% of its population during the three-year bombing period. And I quote, after destroying North Korea's 78 cities and thousands of her villages and killing countless numbers of her civilians, General Curtis LeMay remarked, quote, I can't imitate his accent, unfortunately. Over a period of three years or so, we killed off, what, 20% of the population. Curtis LeMay was one of the major generals uh, who led uh, the, the, um, the bombing campaign. And this, these casualties are um, unprecedented in the history of warfare in terms of percentage of population. If you look at World War II, well, some countries like Russia, Yugoslavia, Germany, may have lost up to 10%, but we're talking about 30% of their population in uh, consistent bombing raids. And the irony is that this country, this remote country in Northeast Asia is labeled as a threat to global security and to the security of the American homeland. This is Pyongyang in 1953. This is Pyongyang today. Now you won't see these pictures because these pictures go against the notion that Pyongyang could possibly be a modern society with a skyline and public services and so on. And, and in fact, you have a situation where, in fact, they have very, very high literacy rates. They have an outstanding healthcare sector. Uh, in many regards, their social indicators uh, are much higher than those of the United States of America, particularly with regard to literacy. They have a 99%. Now, we're not here to build an apology for North Korea. We just want to say these are, you know, these are people who rebuilt. They started with this. 
and they're certainly not, um, they're certainly going to fight to protect what they've got. And if they chose the route of deterrence, that was their own decision, whether we, I personally am not very hot on the idea, but it was viewed as, it, was, it, it came rather late, actually, um, in, it, and in 2006, they actually made offered to, to rescind their nuclear weapons program in, in exchange for a peace agreement, and that didn't go through. In this debate, intimating that North Korea is a threat, a nuclear threat, nobody has taken the trouble to look at the, to acknowledge, first of all, that South Korea, for a period of almost 10 years, was a nuclear weapon state, with the support of the United States, but from a juridical point of view, it was a separate entity. It was established in the 70s. The US nukes were stationed, nuclear facilities were stationed in South Korea starting in 1956, okay? And then they moved them because the delivery systems didn't require them to be right on, on the doorstep of, of, the, of the DPRK. Um, so that South Korea is a nuclear weapon state and nobody talks about it. South Korea is a, is de, is a de facto proxy colony of the United States, up, at least with regard to military affairs. The United States um, controls not only its own forces within Korea, which are of the order of 27,000, 27,000 to 28,000, they're stationed in South Korea. Uh, they also, through um, a joint defense agreement, they also control the totality of the South Korean armed forces, both personnel and equipment. The Combined Forces Command means that the uh, United States could actually call a war on China or Russia and mobilize Korean forces, South Korean forces. And uh, since they're persistently in a state of war, the Korean president, who is also identified as commander-in-chief, is virtually not a commander-in-chief. Because they say in, in a state of war, it's the, the US general appointed by the Pentagon who takes over. North Korea is a buffer state. The ultimate targets are Russia and China. And there are other reasons, economic and political reasons, which they, uh, uh, they, are, they seek uh, to maintain their hegemony in, in uh, Northeast Asia, uh, to prevent the reunification of the two Koreas, and to prevent that these countries ultimately might become partners with, with the Chinese and the Russians, okay? So that uh, this is a much more recent document, which dates back, I think, to 2015. You can, you can consult it, it's a public document, uh, and it says, War with China. And it is a blueprint uh, commissioned by the US Army to actually blow up China. But they say, well, China is going to resist, and then we have to come in, and then so on and so forth. But ultimately, we will win. And this is a, a scenario which takes place in the future. Admittedly, this type of stuff is meant to be read by the Chinese, okay? You don't bring out a document and stick it on the internet. Uh, it's, it's not a secret document by any means. So it, it has a, there's an element of threat behind it. There's, there are all sorts of insinuations, and you can read it. Although a war would harm both economies, damage to China's would be far worse. Because much of the Western Pacific would become a war zone, China's trade with the region and the rest of the world would decline substantially. China's loss of seaborne energy supplies would be especially, that is what they seek. Because China is an upcoming economic power 
they're not, they're not um, imposing themselves militarily in the countries, with the countries they trade, um, they, but they are a threat to US hegemony. Now, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, the Russian president um, made a proposal to have um, a trading agreement which would link Russia, China, North Korea, and South Korea with road networks which would come from South Korea into North Korea and then would go towards, towards Vladivostok. And, of course, some of those roads are already there, but it would be... It would be based on, a, on some kind of, of uh, North East Asian trade agreement, a bit, you know, a sort of a NAFTA in the, in the Asian context. And of course, that kind of initiative an immediately impinges on, um, on um, US hegemony. Japan would most probably be partner in that kind of, of, uh, of endeavor. So that any kind of reunification of North and South is a slap in the face to the United States because it then has to deal with a country, first of all, which has far greater sovereignty, um, which has a population going on to 80 million people, 55, 50 to 55 million in South Korea, plus 25 million in North Korea, uh, combining tremendous uh, scientific, technological, military, capabilities, uh, a reunited Korea would become a, a major uh, rival in, it already is, South Korea already a rival in, in, in many areas of the global economy. But um, the, the hegemonic project is always to keep these countries separate and to fragment them. That's the, the, it's the same process in the Middle East. You carve countries up like you're doing in Iraq and Syria. This kind of restructuring of the North East Asian region with reunification would indeed lead to uh, competing or reinforcing uh, the, the trading bloc uh, which the Chinese are in the process of building, which is, the, which is the Belt and Road Initiative. The Belt and Road Initiative is a massive project of integration uh, across Eurasia, both by land and by sea. The, the maritime routes are militarized, we know that. Uh, the United States is in Afghanistan for the simple reason that the Chinese are also there and they have contracts in, in the copper mining, but they're also building a road from Afghanistan through the, this strategic corridor right into the Xinjiang Yuga autonomous region and on to the, Gans to the province of Gansu, etc. They're integrating the transport routes so that, in fact, that whole region of Central Asia would, would be under, would be trading with China, Pakistan, and so on. So that is the, the, the background uh, of this, uh, of this um, Korean crisis. These countries meeting in Vancouver are demanding and pressuring North Korea to abolish its nuclear weapons program. That is the purpose and threatening them. If they don't, we will, we will bomb you preemptively. This small country in Northeast Asia actually voted in favor of the abolition of nuclear weapons, and it was the only one of the nuclear weapon states. We see how double standards are in the process of inserting themselves into these realities, but uh, coverage by the media is never there. The, uh, they won't say that, that uh, DPRK is the victim of extensive war crimes, they want to defend themselves, they want to whatever, okay, they're socialists or communists, but that's not the issue. That's their right to be whatever they want to be. Um, and even if their head of state is a, is, a, is a crazy guy with a funny haircut, that is not an issue 
as far as sovereignty is concerned. That's their concern, not ours. The, the most powerful of instrument of peacemaking is ultimately, at this stage, is counter-propaganda. It, it's to build a consensus which will counter the legitimacy of the war criminals in high office. It's, not some, it's something which can only be achieved uh, if we harness large numbers of, of people uh, across the land, nationally and internationally, and, um, and that, but that process has to be based on an understanding which is not being provided by the mainstream media. And at the same time, the independent media is, is, is the target. Michael Chosodovsky is a professor emeritus of economics at the University of Ottawa and the director of the Center of Research on Globalization. Read more about Chosodovsky at greenplanetmonitor.net. You are listening to The Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Arthur Crudup, recorded in October 1945, accompanied by Charles Chick Saunders on drums, Dirt Road Blues. The next time you think fearfully about bacteria, consider this. There are more of these little creatures residing in your various passageways than there are cells of your own. Most of the time, their useful services are inestimable for healthy digestion, also amazingly, for your state of mind. Sometimes, though, the gut-brain axis can turn into an axis of evil. Listen to this. The pains were so tremendous, you spend most of the day on the toilet. John Harvey sits at a Winnipeg cafe, describing the havoc 
Crohn's disease has wreaked in his life. Not surprisingly, Crohn's has also wreaked havoc on Harvey's state of mind. I, at my lowest point, I remember lying in a bathtub uh, filled with water and thinking, okay, well, this is where I'll open up my wrists. It's a no-brainer. Painful and embarrassing gut problems are an emotional bummer. Anybody with a chronic disease of any type can have stress, and stress can beget a chronic anxiety disorder or depression. For Dr. Charles Bernstein, there's more to it than that. Bernstein, a professor of gastroenterology at the University of Manitoba, has noticed that mood disorders in people with Crohn's and other forms of inflammatory bowel disease often precede gut problems. Bernstein thinks the trillions of bacteria in a person's bowels affect both mood and gut function. Having bacteria in your bowel triggers an immune response, and if it triggers an aberrant immune response, some of that immune response may also impact on brain function. By manipulating the bugs in the bowel, one may be able to improve the mood disorder. So in the gut, you have all these bacteria. The idea of treating Crohn's and its mood effects by manipulating gut bacteria intrigues Stephen Collins, a gastroenterologist at McMaster University. Bacteria are tiny chemical factories, Collins says. The molecules they produce could affect the brain in two ways. The secretion of metabolites or some product of the bacteria either directly influence the brain or indirectly influence the, br the brain. Another way is by accessing neural circuitry directly, close to the inner surface of the gut. If healthy gut bacteria affect the mind, says Pramshal Birchik, a colleague of Collins at McMaster, it's no surprise antibiotics can mess up a person's head. This is called uh, antibiotic-induced psychosis. And usually these patients normalize their behavior when you stop this antibiotic treatment. On the other hand, inflammatory bowel disease and associated mood disorders both seem to be linked to abnormal populations of gut bacteria. The efficacy of probiotics, edible formulations of good bugs to replace the bad, is now under investigation. The simplest approach may be a healthy diet for you and your gut bacteria. Diet is one of the major influences on the metabolic activity of the bacteria. And if you now believe that these bacteria are in constant communication with the brain, then it's absolutely possible then that food can alter mental status uh, via the, uh, the microbiota. I don't want to say that I have an understanding of the bacteria in my gut. John Harvey doesn't need to be convinced that good food can relieve Crohn's woes. But I will say that I have an understanding that if I eat a balanced meal, my mood is much better. And probiotics? Harvey hasn't tried them yet, but he's open. I guess it's like kickstarting your bowel to aid in digestion. And quite frankly, when you're healthy, your mood does improve. I can testify to that and will day all day long. If a good diet, anti-inflammatory drugs and probiotics don't resolve a case of Crohn's and associated depression, a fecal transplant may be next. Though potentially hazardous, blood transfusions were considered perfectly safe until the emergence of bloodborne pathogens like HIV and Hep C Great care will be taken before inserting one person's fecal matter into the gut of another, lest it cause infection or go to their head. I'm Dave Kattenberg. After the long way from home, can't sleep at night. Grab your telephone, something just ain't right. That's evil. Evil is going on. Get in your stove, that's evil. Evil is going on wrong. I am part of you, brother. You better watch your happy home. 
is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Nothing stimulates more debate in a room filled with Americans and Canadians than the relative merits of their health care systems. The closest Americans have ever gotten to a public health care system of the sort in place just about everywhere else in the world was the Affordable Health Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. Republican opponents at the time when Obamacare was being debated in Congress pointed to Canada's socialized health care system and how much of an unmitigated disaster it was. Canadians, by and large, are thankful for what they've got. For a taste of the great health care politics divide, here's a segment from a 1992 exchange between Bob Ray, Premier of Ontario at the time, and William F. Buckley, libertarian host of the TV show Firing Line, recorded in a lecture hall at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Buckley was suffering from a Canadian-style cold and sniffled a lot. I recorded this myself off the soundboard. I think that where, where not, not just our party, but where a great many Canadians, I think, uh, feel quite strongly, is that we have created here over the last number of centuries... Uh, a different political culture, uh, where where I would argue that communitarian values, uh, values of solidarity, of caring for one another, and how we express that in terms of some of our social institutions, are are stronger than in the United States, which has a much much stronger uh, libertarian uh, culture in terms of its orientation, and where the gaps, for example, between rich and poor in Canada are are less strong than they are in the uh, in the United States. Uh, where there are, and there are, you know, there are people, you can choose, in a sense, you can, you can, you can see the, the differences between our societies just by, by traveling around in them. It, I don't it, think it's a it question does. of being anti-American. I think it's just a question of being different, that's all. Just being, just being Canadian. It's like, it's, it's, I don't think it's a question of being anti-anything else or anti-anybody else. Uh, if those gaps between rich and poor are less pronounced than in America, is it that you make the poor less poor that you make the rich less rich. Uh, well, we, we, have our, we have our share of billionaires. Uh, I, think that, I think it's probably the former rather than the latter in terms of how, we, how, how things are, are worked through. I think if you look, for example, I keep coming back to the example of Medicare because I think it's a very good example of the, of the different public philosophies in our two countries. I think that, 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 that that's, a, that's, a, that's a good way of looking at what's different about us uh, and what, how we have done things as opposed to how you have done things. It doesn't make us that unique. I mean, I, I would argue that the United States is one of the few industrial countries around the world that doesn't have a stronger uh, sense of, of, uh, of public 
uh, involvement in health insurance is, in a, is one example. Well, we spend a larger percent of our GNP on health than you do. Yes, but you also have a, a whole lot more people who don't have any health insurance. Well, th that's, that's, easier to, that's easier to say than it is to locate. Uh, well, people, people assume that because there are 35 million Americans who don't have uh, health insurance, that there are 35 million people, uh, Americans who don't have health. Now, that doesn't actually uh, work out that way. Uh, I might say, for instance, in all of Canada, there are two MRI machines. In America, there are 3,000. So does well, that you, mean you're, you're you not be, interested in health at that level? You would, be, you would be wrong if you were to say such a thing. Well, I got it from a Canadian yesterday. Well, it, it, to happens, to be, it happens to be uh, incorrect. But, but I, 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 so that you know, one can, I think, look at the, the way in which we've uh, provided health care across Canada and say that we as a general rule, have, have probably have wider access. We have uh, greater longevity. We have lower infant mortality rates. Uh, and we have, generally speaking, a higher standard of public health than is well, the case in your own country. Maybe just a healthier race. <laughs> oh, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, you, you, may, think, you may do more gymnastics the morning. I don't think that'll stand up. I doubt that. Uh, but I question the generality that says because you have uh, because you have, quote, free health, uh, well, it's you not have free. greater concern. God knows it's not free. No, it's yeah. not free. We, <laughs> we, uh, I know. We, uh, we as a government, we spend 30, almost 35% of our budget as a provincial government is spent on health care, so it's not free. Yeah. There's no illusion about that. On the other hand, the cost to employers is less because it's, a, it's widely shared throughout the community uh, and uh, it's, uh, it guarantees a, a wider access to, uh, to more people. Well, it, it has its advantages and it has its disadvantages. We That's have right. We have 1,500 different insurance policies. The result is that the bureaucratic cost of our system is equal to the entire cost of your system. So we, we spend $113 billion just in filling out forms, which does make a lot, a lot of sense to, uh, to me at all. On the other hand, uh, we, we, we are not justified in, in believing that the kind of satisfaction that our rather lavish health system gives would be met if we were to duplicate your own. The long, long lines of people who wait for elective surgery would be an example. We, again, I think you're, you're, you're working on a number of, of, uh, of myths which uh, uh, have been uh, unfortunately perpetrated by those who uh, I think benefit from the perpetration of the myths but that's that is another example who benefits of great from that? Uh, well I mean uh, people in the United States for example who don't want to have uh, a different kind of system uh, say all kinds of things about our healthcare system which just aren't true uh, we have uh, we have succeeded in our own case for example in uh, in, in in dramatically reducing uh, waiting periods and waiting times for uh, for operations, uh, including ones that are not not uh, you know that are that are serious, uh, so-called elective heart surgery, for example. Those waiting lists have been have been reduced uh, dramatically in our in our own province. The reason I would argue that the reason that you might not have some lists in the United States is because you have tens of millions of people who aren't even on a list because they don't have any health insurance at all. They don't have access to the to the most basic. Uh, elements of the system. So, sure, you don't have a waiting list, nobody's capable of lining up. It seems to me that if that were, uh, if that were correct, it would be a self-justifying situation because all 35 million of those people would be dead. Well, a lot of them, die. a lot of them would, would, a lot of them would die earlier and would die younger. A lot of their kids would, would not live past uh, uh, early, early days. Uh, I think that evidence is overwhelming. How else do you explain uh, differences in in, uh, in infant mortality rates and things of that kind? I mean, you 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 do pay a price. Uh, a society does pay a price for for the system that it chooses. We have chosen ours, and and you have chosen yours. And I think that. All it proves is that Canada is different, uh, that we've chosen to do things in a different way. And uh, I think that this, this is one of the arguments that, that I try to use to say, well, how, how is Canada different from the United States? I would argue that the way in which we care for one another uh, is a, perhaps a principal example. Well, I, I, uh, I'm a little bit skeptical about that. It may, may be that just as you say that there are propagandists 
who oppose socialized medicine, so are their propagandists who, are, who propound the virtues of socialized medicine. Uh, may, may, I, may I remind you one more time that to say there are 35 million people without health insurance isn't to say there are 35 million people without health care. Uh, you can get, uh, a, for $150 a month, which is well, well below the level of income of people in the poverty level, you can get um, a, a health policy in America for an entire family with, to be sure, $500 deductible. So a lot, a lot of people who don't have health care insurance have a different set of priorities. There's nobody in America who doesn't have, for instance, a television set. Nobody in America who doesn't have a car. Uh, and yet we're talking about items that are capital expenditures. So a lot of people are careless on the matter of health. Here it's very easy. Everybody has health insurance because they have to get it whether they like it or not. Gee, I mean, it's interesting to hear you use those arguments because, because they're just so they're so different than arguments that one would hear within the Canadian political framework. I mean, Absolutely. Are, I yeah. mean, they really are. I mean, that's so that. I mean, I, it's it's almost like, with due respect, well, it's almost me, like visiting a museum. Let, let mean, me ask you this. <laughs> if, if, uh, the, the, the planted axiom of your analysis is that if every Canadian had to pay in exactly what he's in fact paying in for his health insurance, every Canadian would do so. Uh, in, in which event, you raise the interesting question, why does it have to be compulsory? If all Canadians would do it anyway, why aren't they permitted to do it anyway? No, I, I don't think I ever said that people would do it anyway. Well, you say that, you say that you, it sounds strange to your ears that uh, in America there should even be the liberty not to take out health insurance if you want to spend your money else differently. Well, we, we just... I think the, the again, it's it's a it's a decision that's been made, and it's it's a decision that's emerged from our from our political culture. But what's interesting now is that it's a it's a decision that's been made by our by our country, that started with our party in one province, <coughs> uh, and then was was adopted by other parties, that's now accepted by all the political parties in the political spectrum, even the most conservative party that's now emerged no, I don't, I don't in our country uh, would would uh, have the reform party. Has, uh, has stated its commitment to uh, uh, to to, uh, to to the sort of some of those some of the parts of the system. So I, I find it, as I say, I don't doubt it's popular. All I'm saying is an awful lot of people are for it because they really think they're getting free health care. They are, in fact, as you and I know, not getting free health care. They're paying for it and they're paying lavishly for it. Uh, it. There's a sense in which I think your system is better than our own because we're paying, spending much more money on health than you are. Uh, and with yet, a yet there are these With a lesser result. Oh, I don't know. It may, it may very well be that our healthiest people are healthier than your healthy people. I don't know. <laughs> no, but it's one of the things. I mean, again, I'm I, mean, sick, by I think. No, but I mean, I think it's something that Americans should know. That if you look at things like, uh, you know, just how long you live. If you look at things like uh, infant mortality rates, America doesn't do that well. Not only in comparison with us, but in comparison with with a great many other countries. Well, you, you keep bringing up infant mortality, so let's just deal with that. Uh, we have a huge minority uh, population, which you don't have. Uh, and uh, that minority population uh, tends to be, uh, uh, many of them, uh, uh, informal in respect of following certain uh, uh, rules of hygiene. Well, I, let me and, just And, 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 just, and if, let me you if you extrapolate, if, if you prescind that figure from the American infant mortality rate, you would find that ours is at least equal of yours. Well, we, I mean, uh, again, I, I uh, just, just to bring the argument back to, uh, to where we're at here in Canada, first of all, we have a multiracial society. Second of all, we have a very large native population in terms of so that there's a range of people, backgrounds, uh, ways of life uh, that, uh, that are here too. Uh, and I think that uh, I'll, let, I'll let Americans deal with your arguments in relationship to American society. All I would say is, is that uh, the, the rights of citizenship, in my view, and the, the rights to public health, in my view, apply to all people, regardless of where they come from or what their racial background is. Yeah, but I think you're making that question. You can't say anything wrong. Why don't you apostatize and see what happens? <laughs> but there's a, there's a famous black comedian. Ontario Premier Bob Ray and libertarian firebrand William F. Buckley both highly inform in front of a, a purposefully polarized, highly appreciative audience at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. 
back in 
that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio here in Winnipeg, and at CKUW.net. Subscribe to our podcast at GreenPlanetMonitor.net or around the world on iTunes. Tell everyone you know. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. Join me again next time. Bye-bye.